Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gens. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. It is a beautiful early spring day here in Munich. Glad to be with you all. We are going to review I'll Eat When I'm Dead by Barbara Borland today. I'm so grateful and excited to be able to bring this book to you all. Uh, we reviewed Barbara Borland's second book last year during Horrifying Classics. Well, two years ago, I guess, at this point. Horrifying Classics 2021 was Barbara Borland's first book. Uh, which is called Fake Like Me. It was a good review. It was just such an exciting thrill of a book. And you will see in this episode that I'll Eat When I'm Dead is similar. This author just has so much going for her. And I am so, so thrilled to be able to read and review her books. They are just such a delight. Before we get started for this episode in particular, I want to have a trigger warning. People who have triggers around eating disorders, disordered eating, drugs and alcohol, and the uses thereof, this might not be the episode for you. I'm going to trust that you have good discernment around your own tolerance levels on those things again the disordered eating slash eating disorders, drugs and alcohol, and the uses thereof. Big trigger warning here at the beginning of the episode. I don't want to trigger anybody. You can see by the title sort of the themes and the critiques that Barbara Borland draws out from the book. I'm taking a moment. You can always go to last week's episode, next week's episode, we've got lots of great content that doesn't involve these sort of triggers. Awesome. Let's get into a one-minute plot summary. So the main characters of this book are Catherine Ono. She's just called Cat, C-A-T, in the main part of the book, and Bess, who is her best friend in this book sort of her if you know the buddy genre like you know think of all the pretty horses there's just kind of those buddy genre books a lot of them are westerns there's a lot of buddy genre films out there so yes this is sort of a buddy genre kind of book um so yeah cat and best best friends they're together a lot of the time in this book there's um, Mark Hutton, who is a detective for the NYPD. By the way, Kat and Bess are fashionistas. They, well, they're magazine editors for this publication called The Rage Fashion Book. And The Rage Fashion Book we'll get to in a minute. Uh, there's an intern for The Rage Fashion Book who has a prominent role in this novel called Molly. Then there is... Cat uh, and Bess's boss. Her name is Lou, L-O-U, but she has kind of a an interim position in the company. She is filling in for 
the recently deceased Hillary, who uh, tragically died in her office um, at the Rage Fashion Book and had kind of a mysterious death that Detective Mark Hutton wants to look into a bit further. Um, Salou is a socialite, essentially, hasn't had a real job before, but is filling in in order to keep that role occupied. So you've heard me mention the buzzword that this book is a thriller, and it certainly is that. It has a very intense pace, there's a climax near the end of the novel, and there's that heartbeat in the novel that you just know, okay, this is going to be a thriller. Um, the pacing, you know, everything, all of the classic indicators of a thriller are definitely within this novel. This novel is a thriller, but it's oddly subject specific as well to the fashion industry. Um, and that's something that I really enjoyed is this almost cult take on the thriller that is about the fashion industry. It is very, very satiric in nature. There's just a lot of poking at the fashion industry um, and that sort of the neighboring subjects of fashion and you know the ethical side of fashion quote-unquote then the image side of fashion and you know the working side of fashion how hard people work in that industry for what they end up getting out of it the hype and the social media around the fashion there's just a lot of subject specific or internal slash fashion specific termini and pockets that this book taps into which I thought was just such a brilliant take on a thriller because normally thrillers uh, I think of Ronald Malfi's come with me you know classic thriller it's kind of this like thriller ghost story kind of thing um, you know there's sort of a mystery and then at the end like the mystery gets solved and that's certainly the case with this but there's that heart within it that is about the fashion industry and there's a social or even I would say a political agenda regarding that so that's something that I really enjoyed about this novel again. So Rage Fashion Book, everything that is pu published in, fa in Rage Fashion Book features products that are all made by living wage workers. So that's the sort of buzz buzzword and identity word behind rage is that everything is living wage, then it's sort of more eco-friendly in that regard. It's a highly competitive, highly respected and renowned publication. Um, but as with most print media, even that's been digitized, the clientele for it is slowly dwindling. So there's a constant need to get more information out there with regard to rage, better quality content, more content, and that is really a struggle for workers for rage like Bess and Kat and their bosses the person who is the front runner in the face of rage who is kind of like the top boss the CEO type of figure um, and of course for the people who are financing rage so that's there's a lot of just external pressures for the magazine 
that end up influencing some of the characters and their decision making in the book. We enter in on a fairly typical day for Bess, who comes to the office early. She's not someone who messes around with a lot of drugs or other sort of substances uh, so that she can get her sleep and get up and work in the morning. She's an extremely driven person. Um, I really appreciated this first view early on in the novel. There's sort of a prologue as there was in her second novel, Fake Like Me. There's sort of a like newspaper type of prologue about the death of Hillary, who we learn is connected via connections from a boarding school um, to Kat and Bess. And so they, they all kind of worked together and there was, I don't want to say a nepotistic relationship because that's not true in terms of the actual meaning of nepotistic, but you get what I mean. There's kind of a friends slash buddy system connection with how they all are getting jobs at Rage. Um, Hillary being the highest person on the ladder, so to speak, and then Catherine, and then Bess, and then Molly. So on this fairly typical day, Kat ends up coming into the office about mid-morning. Bess is already there. She's been cataloging these bracelets for the magazine and other jewelry things. And Kat comes in. Um, she's getting about her work. And Detective Mark Hutton comes into the office. He is reinvestigating some of the pieces of the death of Hillary, who was again Catherine's boss, and they were very, very close. Um, like I said, from these connections that they had from boarding school and everything. So, interestingly, Hillary's death is cataloged in the records as a death from starvation. And this is very, very bizarre. People in New York City, you know, in that kind of estraton don't typically die of starvation, so there's a lot of question marks about this death, whether there was foul play involved or whether there were other factors like drugs, for example, involved. It's up to Mark Hutton to kind of reinvestigate. I get the sense in this book that he, this is not like a direct assignment from him, but that he has suspicions and he's following them like any good detective. So... He comes in and develops a sort of relationship with Kat in the sense that they are both immediately attracted to each other. And Hutton, I think very problematically, sees Kat as someone who's very ethereal, otherworldly. otherworldly. He doesn't really understand her worldview or the world that she works in, indeed. Um, I think it's similar for Kat, especially since Kat, like we'll get into later in the episode, is an immigrant into the U.S., and so she has a different perspective on law enforcement, and she has to be careful because of her visa situation um, about her interactions with law enforcement because her visa could be in jeopardy. So they automatically have this physical attraction, they seem to really like each other, and at the same time, they come from these kind of opposing worldviews. Eventually, throughout their relationship, skipping on in the story, um, Kat gets the hint from 
a purse that Hillary has left behind at one of their mutual friend's houses that there is a cosmetics company that Hillary was obsessed with in the years leading up to her death. Kat visits this cosmetics company just to see what it was indeed that Hillary was taking and she gets a makeover glow up and leaves to have sort of a date with Mark Hutton and it turns out that there are drugs in these cosmetics and she shows up to the date on drugs unknowingly and Mark Hutton realizes oh my gosh this person was systematically taking a drug that she probably didn't know the dosage she was taking probably didn't know the extent of her addiction all of that kind of thing so there's a very sort of twi uh, cunning twist when Kat mistakenly brings all of these cosmetics. So Mark Hutton et al. <laughs> at the police station um, and in accordance with other more broad authorities like the FBI, I think, they devise a scheme to bring Kat and Bess and plus two agents into that cosmetics company, which is operating, I think, mostly under the table um, in terms of their clientele and everything. And they go and get more samples from the company on the way out. The federal agencies bust the operation. Bess and Kat are arrested, which is, again, big red flag for Kat's visa and other immigration stuff and Hutton, Mark Hutton, is the detective who at the end of the day gets all the credit for one of the biggest drug ring busts ever. So very quickly into their relationship there's this sort of drug bust slash uncovering of this company that is connected with Hillary and her death, and the fashion world at large. A lot of other things happen that I'm skipping over. For example, Kat and Bess, after they get arrested, end up being propelled into major celebrities. So they give up their office jobs in favor of essentially being figureheads for rage, um, being dressed up and doing interviews and fashion shows and all that. So that's an aside. At the end of the novel, I'm skipping large chunks of it again, this is a novel full of just this amazingly rich plot. There is an expose about Hillary that airs in one of the monthly editions of Rage Fashion Book that talks about, you know, her relationship with um, Kat and other individuals involved in Rage and otherwise. Um, that Lou helps to put together. So Lou is the person who's standing in for Hillary, and this is part of a new monthly segment. During the novel, and the sort of meat of the novel, there's a model who's described as being just a little more plus size than standard, quote-unquote, standard model. So I'm guessing she's a fairly normal, you know, shape. She's just a beautiful girl who happens to be a little heavier than other models, I'm not sure, and um, that's how I had her in my head. Um, just, just a beautiful girl, you know, um, who is marketed as sort of this more plus-size model. Her name is Callie, and Callie and Mark Hutton go back 
a long ways. They are friends and friends with benefits. And they have just a... They almost have a sibling type of relationship in my mind. Um, except for, of course, the benefits. So take that as you will. The relationship is... It's a little bit toxic due to the constant leaving pressures, leaving again. There is some addiction stuff with regard to Callie in there um, and her rehab and things like this. So, you know, it's a little bit, there, there are some toxic strings in that relationship um, for sure. But at the end of the novel, as the next sort of woman that they're going to write an expose about, uh, Callie, who ends up mistakenly passing away at a party at Lou's penthouse, I believe, um, her diaries uh, get stolen. Lou ends up finding them. Uh, and Lou like sort of steals snippets from Callie's diary and writes about her relationship with Mark Hutton, writes about just things that are so over-dramatized. They don't pay tribute to her work or her death um, or her life. So it's a big deal, but because of these external pressures that Rage, Rage has, they decide to essentially pull the trigger and work it into the edition of Rage that's coming out at the end of the book. Um, the whole staff of Rage gets flown to Paris for Paris Fashion Week, and there um, they are getting ready for our last shoot. But at the end of the book, they're in Paris. Mark Hutton ends up going to Paris. He makes amends with Kat, which, again, their relationship is rocky from the beginning. <laughs> we'll talk about it. Kat, Bess, and Mark realize near the same time that Lou has been behind the scenes working to sort of ruin this last shoot in Paris for Cat and Bess. Um, she's been using the cosmetics from that drugged cosmetics company in their shampoos and everything. So they're just like constantly bonkers and they don't realize it until later. So um, her plan was essentially to, to sort of incapacitate them using these cosmetics from that she had changed in the bottles and all the free cosmetics and stuff in the hotel room to sabotage this last shoot which Catherine was supposed to run and there's a lot of other plot goodies in there about Lou's connections with this company and her sort of shareholding or stakeholding within the company um, and just her like very deep tendrils of connections in the company that she has like sort of illegally foraged through her young daughter. It's it's a really, really clever, well-designed plot. Um, lots of twists in there, not all of which I will spoil for you all. But at the end, of course, Mark Hutton comes in, they come in in the shoot, and Lou is very surprised. She says, oh, what are you all doing here? You know, and her goal is to essentially do the shoot, run the expose, keep her job, you know, and kind of keep her status in the company. And it's, it's just this very, like, overly selfish, horrible, just these measures that she goes through. 
she really is a villain in this in this book. I didn't think about that before, but yes, yeah, she's quite the villain. Um, and you know, she's obviously surprised that Cat and Bess are standing and well and able to <laughs> communicate. Um, and Mark Hutton arrests Lou. Catherine ends up leaving Rage and working for a competitor for Rage that is just seems like more open, less toxic, and it's a balance between her new role as a influencer. So she's kind of using her role as an influencer from the past, however long in the book, as well as her skills in the fashion world and her knowledge of the fashion world in general to propel herself into this new role in an up-and-coming social media company that uses like geolocation in order to find celebrities and it's also about like the brands that the celebrities are wearing so you, it geolocates the brands and the items that they're wearing i think in it tells you where the nearest location like to buy it is or like how to buy it um, it's a really clever idea for an app so if you're an app developer talk to barbara borland <laughs> um so yeah it's she catherine gets to move on and work for this other company that seems a little more ethical ethical she ends up moving along with one of the more senior employees at rage who strikes this very interesting relationship that i think is a great sidebar in the book with the person who is helping to run this company and Beth ends up staying at rage to continue working for rage and continue working on the mission so to speak and you get the sense that due to Bess's capacity for hard work and her genuine interest in the magazine and genuine passion for it that there's a bright future for all parties involved except of course for Lou let's talk about being an outsider One of the aspects of this book that I enjoyed a lot, um, something that I really took to quite a bit, was this outsider status that Kat has. She's an immigrant, she's Flemish, and she's also mixed race. So uh, there's a lot of dimensions socially that Kat has, just, and you know, she carries those with her. And I pointed this out in my own head while I was reading because I'm mixed race. Kat is Japanese and Flemish and I am Korean and Norwegian. So it's when I was younger, I didn't have those figures or those characters in books that I could look at and say, this person is just like me. This person is mixed race like me. And it was refreshing to see a character like that. And I'm not going to comment on, you know, that whole you know, the political conversation. I'm trying to stay apolitical on this show. But at the same time, it felt really good to have someone who had different considerations and made choices um, differently because of their visa status in the country and, you know, someone who was brave enough to move across the world to pursue education and to pursue um, careers, you know. So there's a lot of similarities there that I I felt were really refreshing to read and also really relatable. At the same time though, 
cat has a ton of flaws, you know. I found her not to be the most likable character in the world. Like, I liked Bess in terms of, like, my relationship with Bess as a reader way more than I liked Cat during the novel. Cat has a lot of drug and alcohol issues. There's just a lot of, like, stuff that Cat is working on overcoming. Um, especially towards the end of the novel, as she gets more involved in her celebrity and modeling career, she does start to develop disordered eating tendencies. In fact, she just doesn't eat, and the line, I'll eat when I'm dead, belongs to Kat. So there is just a ton of issues at the end. So, you know, all of those things being said, it's a really, in Kat, I find a really balanced character. Someone who I don't agree with her choices a lot of the time. Someone who um, it has her own struggles and has her own evolution throughout the book, but at the same time, there are these characteristics within her, even just, you know, her dedication and her passion, despite her problems, to her work. She ends up being a balanced character that I, as a reader, had empathy for. So I think she was really well written in that regard. Let's get into the subject specificity of the novel. So I really loved all the descriptions of clothing and different brands and different styles. I felt that to be a really refreshing part of the novel. It wasn't just all plot, it wasn't just all character, there was just this subject specificity about the fashion world that I loved. I thought it was just so well done, so well researched. Seems like Barbara Borland might have a passion for this, I'm not sure. Just the way that she internalizes and secures the world of each of her novels, at least the two that I've read, has been just amazing to me. <laughs> I'm really in awe of her talent for encapsulating these subject-specific worlds like the art world in Fake Like Me or like this particular fashion world in Elite Women Dead. There's just so much elaboration on the clothing descriptions. I'll read some for you. Um, and I think that is strategic in the novel. The way I read it was that the elaborate specificity all the time of these clothing choices that these women are making, it's not only a passion for them, it's not only an obsession for them, but also at a point when Kat and Bess reach their pinnacle of celebrity, it becomes exhausting for them. It becomes exhausting, especially as this app tracks their geolocation everywhere and everything. Um, there's just that overwhelm. And so the descriptions, you know, at first they're kind of fun. You kind of read through, you're like, oh, like what brand is that? And then at the end of the book, you're like, oh my gosh, like this is too much. Like this is taking over. Um, and that the ever-present role of fashion in their lives and fashion as like this choice that takes up so much of their livelihood. That is uh, something that becomes more and more, I think, increasingly disturbing um, throughout the book. So let's go to page 11 where Kat ends up dressing herself, 11 to 12. 
Kat's closet was the only part of her apartment that was actually a built-out room with walls. She grabbed two black silk tank tops, a pair of perforated black lambskin pre-Galliano Marigella leggings, her black leather cowboy boots, and a set of large, ultra-oxidized heavy bronze bracelets from Nigeria that always left her with little bruises. She pulled a large leather tray off the closet's top shelf and finished a white grog's green ribbon out of it, which she wove into her hair in a plait. After snaking into her clothes, she stubbed out her cigarette and sprayed herself down with an industrial-strength bottle of Febreze stolen from the maid's cart at the Standard Hotel. So, and I, I missed one word there. She fished a white gross grain ribbon out of it. I think I said finished accidentally. So, page 11 to 12 here in the book, you get a sense for, like, she's dressing hurriedly, right? But the attention to detail that Barbara Borland plays to how she's dressing herself in what and at what times um, plays a huge role throughout the novel. It's almost like another character that's ever present. And Kat, is, Kat and Bess both are always assessing what people are wearing, um, who people are wearing in that sense. And I think the ever-present role, again, it gets so heavy at the end of the novel when Kat starts to develop these disordered eating tendencies that we can see this satire, this parody of the fashion industry start to settle in. And the last point I want to make about this is that the reason why I point this subject specificity out is because in immersing the reader in the fashion world, Barbara Borland is able to make a more pointed commentary about the industry than if she had positioned her readers in a perspective as in from the outside looking in. So the fact that we're inside the fashion world for the duration of this novel allows her to make a more pointed, a more specific, and I think a more effective commentary about the, especially the objectivity of bodies in the fashion industry and uh, the resulting problems with that, including disordered eating, including that obsessiveness, that level of obsessiveness, that level of quote-unquote perfection that can never be achieved. Let's talk about the love story. All right, Catherine and Mark Hutton. Not my favorite love story I've ever read, to be honest. I believe in this book, I believe the lust behind their love, but I do not believe in the longevity. I ended this book not convinced that this couple was going to make it, which is terrible, right? Because we go through so much in the novel and you really want them to make it. You really have that, that thought that, yeah, I want, I want this couple to make it. The lust and the way that the lust between these two is built up kind of in little slow steps. Um, the, the, they're very quick steps once the characters are actually in a room alone together. It's kind of like the novel Verity by Colleen Hoover, except Verity is very overt. There's like a lot of actual sex going on in the book, whereas here it's more like Twilight where it's more subverted. Um, but yeah, that like lust. You know, without the explicit nature of the physical acts a lot of time in this book, there is that, like, just over, like, these people are physically into each other. 
Um, you know, and throughout the book, Borland plays with the likability of these characters. You know, Mark, no question, takes advantage of Kat. And he is a real jerk. He's very self-serving throughout of the book. We realize that he's been kind of um, set up in life in terms of his family connections and stuff. He is a hard worker. He is, you know, he does his best to stay active and clean and everything. But at the same time, he's got that undercurrent that is just very unlikable throughout the book. So, you know, in playing with all of these likability factors of both these characters, there's a really interesting tension that results in terms of their relationship. And at the end of the novel, I'm sure other readers would get out of it that this relationship does have some longevity to it, but for me, like I said, the overtones of lust were just too strong for me to read anything else in it. The title. I'll eat when I'm dead. Clearly at the beginning of this book, the title references Hillary's death and the fact that Hillary's death is charted as a death from starvation, but later it becomes, it evolves. Much like the story behind Hillary's death evolves, the title and the title's meaning evolves into a biting commentary on the fashion industry and the pressures of objectifying bodies, the pressures of being constantly in the eye of social media and the eye of media in general. There's a lot of, I would call it political, um, references to pop culture, fashion, again, social media that play into the meaningfulness of this title at the end of the day. And that's where the real satire comes in is, you know, clearly not eating translates into dying, but also there's that just stubbornness and willful, willful ignorance of these problems in the fashion industry that lead to people starving themselves, lead to these disordered eating tendencies. I am no expert, so I have absolutely no credibility in this field, so I'm not going to comment further, but there is that poignant satire that even someone like me who's a layperson in this industry and around these issues can understand. Our last two categories here. The first one of the last two is readability. Let's go to page 309 of the novel. I'm going to start in the last sentence of 308. This is from the perspective of Mark Hutton. The horde descended upon him, making their way toward the front doors of the hotel in formation, their voices glancing off the marble ceilings and walls in an unintelligible cacophony. He closed his eyes and listened. Once he'd parsed the syllables, Russian and Mandarin mostly, he became aware, finally, of their youth. Some were impossibly young, barely legal, though each member of the pack had enormous diamonds hanging from their ring fingers. Ropes of gold banded the prominent sinews of their necks. When the first, a brunette, 18 if she was a day, 
past him. She turned her painted lashes up flirtatiously and let her mouth go slack, parting her lips. He tried to look away but found it impossible, and so he moved to make his way past their bodies to the counter, but they insisted on passing him closely. Each one touched his jacket or brushed his arm. Hutton closed his eyes again and waited for the clacking of their heels to meet the whoosh of the revolving door at the front of the hotel. When the last one had exited into the throng of photographers waiting outside, Hutton opened his eyes to find the mustachioed desk attendant staring at him with amusement. All right, that's page 308 to 309. I think what I love about this passage and about Mark Hutton's character in general, if I were to overgeneralize things, is that you get to see the fashion industry from the outside in. And I think for a lot of readers, that's the case when they open the pages of this book. They just don't know a lot about the fashion industry, how things run, the pressures that the people who work there have and everything. Um, and, you know, this, again, there is that, like, underlying tone of satire there. It's like Dickens, where there's kind of this, like, you know, bewilderment that a lot of the characters have. Here, Mark Hutton has this bewilderment regarding this parade of young women who are modeling at Paris Fashion Week, and yet there's a satire there. All of them are super young, yet they're married, yet they're kind of twisted and torn up into this machine already, despite their youth, despite their quote-unquote innocence. As it seems like the innocence has almost been taken from them by the industry. So this book is eminently readable. That's one of the things I love about Barbara Borland's writing. I read this book similarly to Fake Like Me in like one or two writing sessions. I just woke up one morning and got dressed and thought, man, I just want to read this, the rest of this book that I had started the night before. And I did. I just read it in that whole other session. Um, the pacing is super well done. There's never a dull moment. Um, I would love to ask Barbara Borland about her writing routine, you know, whether she does write every day or whether she writes in big spurts. I think it would be interesting to know just because her pacing is so impeccable. Um, it's just, again, there's never a dull moment. I just would love to know how she ends up integrating her writing style into a routine or lack thereof. And our last category here, cross literary comparisons. It occurs to me recently that her writing style is kind of like Stephanie Robel, who wrote Darling Rose Gold, as well as This Might Hurt, um, most recently in 2020. Um, their thriller styles are kind of similar. They um, have a lot of different elements aside from the thriller in it, and I think their plots are just similarly very thrilling. <laughs> They're very compelling. Um, Definitely, Barbara Borland has a more just like subject specific, immersive style to her thrillers, to her writing in general, than Stephanie Robel. Um, but at the same time, they deal with interestingly similar themes in, at least in I'll Eat When I'm Dead and This Might Hurt, in terms of the social media and the, you know, fame versus stardom versus mental illness, all that. They're, they're kind of similar, but again, the, the ways that they articulate those are different. I would definitely say Barbara Borland is a more successful satirist in that regard. If indeed Stephanie Robles' goal at all is to be a satirist, but that's a conversation for another time. It also occurs to me that 
the way that I enjoyed and read this book was similar to the way that I enjoyed and read Tara Westover's Educated. I don't, completely different genres, completely different, you know, stylistic things going on, but their voices, both of their voices, Tara Westover and Barbara Borland, so captivating. The way that they write, those they just read, they write books that people have to read like in one sitting. It's amazing. Uh, Fake Like Me, of course, Barbara Borland's second book. There's a lot of similarities, that subject specificity, um, this kind of a love story that like works and doesn't work in it. <laughs> amazing twists, amazing plots. Um, she has a new book out that I have not read. Um, it's new as of last year, I believe, 2022. The Force of Such Beauty is the title by Barbara Borland. I mentioned Verity by Colleen Hoover in this. Romance, thriller, it's got all the elements. Um, but again, you know, different way of articulating that kind of thriller. And then there's the book that I also mentioned Ronald Malfi's Come With Me, um, a great thriller. It's more on the paranormal side, not really in the... It's realistic, but it's more on the, okay, maybe there's something spiritual happening side, whereas this is very... stays in the real world, stays in the fashion world <laughs> the whole time. All right, y'all. Another super long episode, but I hope you enjoyed it. This book definitely deserves a thorough review. Um, super enjoy... Barbara Borland's writing. I'm looking forward to reading The Force of Such Beauty, her third novel. In the meantime, let me know what you thought of this episode. Let me know what you thought of the book if you've read it, or Fake Like Me as well, or any of the books that we mentioned here. I will see you next week with an episode of PTA. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.